Welcome to Tales of Your City, an exploration of queer identity and community across America, brought to you by Netflix. My name is Lauren Morelli. I'm the showrunner of Tales of the City, a new show on Netflix, and I'm also the host of this week's episode, San Francisco. Each week, we are working with independent queer storytellers to shine a light on the cities we inhabit, the ways we connect, and the moments in which we find space to be our true, authentic selves. I came out simultaneous with tales. I was out to the city. Right. I wasn't out to my family or the right. world. I was out to anybody who met me at the baths, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> it's been such an honor to bring Tales of the City to Netflix, especially since the origin of Tales has such an incredibly rich history that began long before our series, which is out now. It all started in 1978 with a novel by Armistead Maupin, which was originally serialized in the San Francisco Chronicle. Although it spawned more novels and several television adaptations, all of the incarnations shared one thing, a group of people finding their way in San Francisco and creating their own version of family. When I first got the phone call to come in and consult on Shauna's storyline, a young queer woman who would be played by Ellen Page, I was thrilled. At the time, I'd never heard of Tales of the City, and I had no way of knowing that working on the show would become a healing, profound, safe space, one that was filled with queer people, both on the screen and off. To say I'm honored to now be sharing that safe space with a global audience is the understatement of a lifetime. For this week's episode, I sat down with none other than Armistead Maupin, the warm, generous man who started it all. I personally owe so much to Armistead, and getting to know him over the past couple years has been a dream. But it was even more special to sit down with him for the one-on-one -on -one conversation you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Lauren Morelli, the showrunner and one of the executive producers of Netflix's Tales of the City. I should say Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. And I'm sitting here with the one, the only, Armistead. Hi. Hi. So good to be here with you, Lauren. I have a question that I've been wondering. Are you Marianne? Ooh, my secret is out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am Marianne. That's why Laura Linney and I get along so well. Yeah. She understands that character. It took me a long time to realize it, because everyone thinks you're Michael for obvious they all, reasons. They obviously think I'm Michael. Michael is partially me, but mostly who I would have liked to go to bed with and couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? You know? Yeah. Marianne, uh, yeah, a lot of my conservatism and caution and the way her, her you hear her internal thoughts entail, she's always saying something sweet, but she's thinking, ah, oh, what an idiot. That's the fun of Marianne. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I do that a lot. And Laura and I got close, I think, because we, I realized how much we were alike. What year did you move to San Francisco? Uh, 72. And were you out then? No, I came out simultaneous with Tales. I was out to the city. Right. I wasn't out to my family or the right. world. I was out to anybody who met me at the baths, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was sort of what occurred to me, actually, was thinking about that and that when you moved here, you, in, in gender aside, would have very much have been a Marianne. Yeah, my innocence about the place. Yeah, and having your world expanded. And right, I came out to uh, 
a woman friend of mine who called me Baby Cakes, and I stammered it out. I mean, I got had got drunk on my ties before I went to her house, and I said, "I'm I have something to tell you. I'm ho 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 homosexual." And uh, she came over and took my hands in hers. She knelt in front of me and took my hands and said, "Big fucking deal." <laughs> And that uh, freed me. The joy of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. and then I was coming up to everybody. Were you? Cab drivers. <laughs> <laughs> but it couldn't have been, did it feel safe to come out in that way? Yeah. yeah. It, the, the town felt very safe. Yeah. My mother didn't, when she realized that I was coming out to everybody, she uh, worried about me, as mothers do sometimes. Yes. And she said, uh, I, well, I just don't want it to hurt your career. Mm-hmm. And I said, you don't understand, Mama. It is my career. It's pretty remarkable that you knew that then. It just, I don't know. I think its you have to have a big enough ego. Harvey Milk understood it when right. he was running for office. And he right. said, I can do this. All I have to do is not be ashamed of myself, you know. He got killed for it. but uh, So maybe that's what my mother was worried about, too. But I, I, it, it seemed to be to be to work to my advantage. I was so glad that I was in on the ground floor of something. I mean, how, how long had you known, do you think, that you were gay? Since I was six years old and played with my dollhouse. First time I ever had 28 Barbary Lane. <laughs> I could totally do little dramas in the dollhouse. So a part of you was aware of moving toward your community when you moved to San Francisco? Yes. I remember someone saying to me, Oh, you're going to love it there. They've got 50 gay bars. And I just drew myself up and said, I would never go into one of those. I did on my first night in town. I was scared because there were men slow dancing to Streisand. (laughs) (laughs) Still a terrifying proposition. Still a terrifying If this is what I have to do, I'll... Actually, now I crave the chance. I would love to slow dance with my husband somewhere. I would love there to be a club where I I could slow dance to Cole Porter. I was saying this earlier about Body Politic, which is the bar on the show. I wish that existed. I wish there was this like magical queer place that I could go. In many ways, Body Politic is like the fantasy of Barbary Lane. That was a brilliant creation. Was that your idea? Oh, it, was, it came out of the writer's room. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we knew we wanted Shauna to work in like a really queer bar and and yeah I think it does represent what San Francisco used to be by everyone's estimation right like except that it's better it's the, it would be through the lens of today where yeah. there there is men and women all kinds of queer an inventive theatrical place this is one of the things that surprised me about San Francisco I had visited a lot but I hadn't spent much time here before this is the way you write it in the books in terms of the coincidences and how often people are running into each other. And that's one of the things I love about it. It's yeah. not big. And coincidence is highly achievable here. Yeah, I really love it. It, it. it adds to that sort of like sparkly, magical quality here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt uh, when I started writing that given the fact that I was going to be doling out cliffhangers, that I was living in the perfect place for that to happen. I mean, I... I met a guy uh, at the baths one night, sort of dreamy, preppy guy. The next day, he showed up at Beach Blanket Babylon, the show that I worked on, <laughs> yep. with his nine months, not nine months, seven months pregnant wife, holding a big Gucci bag. <laughs> and that's how Dee Dee was born, Dee Dee and Beecham. 
And I felt such sympathy for her and yeah, thought, what kind of a jerk was... He wanted to dance with me behind a column just to get the thrill of treating his wife badly. And so a character grew out of that, and I killed him. And that's the joy of being a writer. That's the joy of being a writer. You can wipe out the assholes yes. real quick. Well, we're, you know, there are moments where I'm like, oh, I'm a total hack, and then I just kill people and I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you move to San Francisco. You become Marianne. I become Marianne. You start writing tales. Yeah. And it takes off very quickly. Yeah. I didn't quite know if it was because they were not telling me in the front office. They didn't want me to ask for more money because I was paid a starter salary as a reporter, which is kind of great if you're writing fiction. You can survive on writing fiction. Uh, But after the first year, uh, one of the women that worked in the office with me, which, by the way, was an all-female space called the People Department, and that was a euphemism for the old women's department. (laughs) The guys were on the other side of the filing cabinets, you know. Oh, my God. And this woman came up and said, Let me, I'm going to show you something, but you can't tell, tell anybody that I'm showing it to you. And she took me to a back space somewhere and showed me three garbage cans full of letters from readers saying, Why did you stop Tales of the City? Whoa. That gave me confidence, and then I charged them a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Someone said to me recently about this new iteration of Tales, like, you know, the estimates are all over the place, but let's assume that gay people comprise 3% of the population, queer people. Someone was like, well, that means 3% of the world is going to watch this. (laughs) And that's a huge... (laughs) I've I've already thought that, I have to tell you. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's the same way that, like, before the dedicated audience was the whole city because you had a paper coming out, and now it's like we're still so starved for queer content, I think. Yeah. portraying characters like this that everyone hopefully will watch. That's my evil plan. (laughs) Thank you for aiding in it so brilliantly. (laughs) Thank you for allowing me to contribute. That's what I mean. But you know, I always said this to someone the other day, and I don't know if I've said it to you before. There's a kindness and warmth and generosity to your writing that I find in my own writing, or at least strive for in my own writing. And I think that, in many ways, is what allowed me to be successful. And I remember you saying it very early, that like there's just kindness at the center of it. And as long as anything we wrote, you know, there's difficult scenes, there are, I think, scenes that require a lot of nuance, but if you come back to kindness, you'll know that you're in the right tales world. And there have been shows that offer queer content when Christopher, my husband, and I will just say, I can't take this. These people are awful. They go in the wrong direction every time. time. Somebody thinks drama is making everybody in the room a bitch. I mean, I'm maybe going to get myself in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is what started to drive me crazy about so much television that's being made. I feel like at some point we started to go in a direction of like, if this person is a bad person, they're interesting. And I'm bored by it. Yeah, me too. I'm as bored by someone making the wrong decision all the time as I am by someone making the right decision all the time. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know those people. I don't know the like housewives that are also murdering their next-door neighbor. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> It's not yeah. just all goody-two-shoes, because no. we know we have a script where people are flawed and make the wrong decisions, and, but they're trying to be good people. I believe that everyone's doing their best. Yeah, and whatever they think that is, they might be wrongly informed. (laughs) (laughs) The crux of it is their best might not be your best or your idea or your wish for what best means. But I think if you come to people that way, it kind of roots you in empathy. It's not a lot of wars if we develop that attitude. (laughs) Yeah. I think you have some pretty radical politics. And I think that's what's surprising about you. 
Do you think so? I do. Yeah. Because, and that's, I mean, we all have our edge, right? And, and you are so warm and so generous and so kind. But you also are rabid in your activism. Because I, and tell me if I'm speaking out of turn. I feel like you have a real anger about people who haven't come out. Tell me why. Because I lived for a time when all my brothers were dying and they were, had a stigma on them that could have been lifted a little bit if famous people hadn't stepped forward. I knew Rock Hudson, as you know, and um, when, he, when it, his AIDS diagnosis became announced to the world, uh, there were very, very few of his friends that would say anything, who would say, of course he was gay. Um, we all knew that. We all loved him. Nobody wanted to be tainted by that. And that's kind of why I said what I said at the time, because I knew that I was going to be like making life easier for him. He got lots of letters from people saying, we don't care what you are. We love you. So it, it, it's, maybe it helps to have, or hurts or whatever, to have lived in that time when the fear was so great yeah. to see people dancing around the subject. You know, It, it annoyed the hell out of me. We've talked so much about um, the dinner party scene, and I came into this season thinking a lot about the rage that exists within the queer community. I personally, my own personal opinion, think there's a lot of anger that we're not talking about. And so we had that conversation in the writer's room, and all the various ways that that anger presents itself and the directions that the anger gets shot in. And so much of that dinner party scene in 104 came out of talking to men specifically of the generation that had to live through AIDS and the rage that has come out of the fact that I feel like grief has still not happened. And it's so interesting because as a younger queer person, I can have a lot of judgment about like, well, you outed that person. But I also have the privilege of getting to be uh, careful about who gets outed because it's not life or death right now. I mean, it is in certain countries, not because of AIDS. We happen to be privileged enough that like my queerness, at least in an urban setting, because I'm white, because I'm all these things, is not life or death. But for everybody for a long time, it was life or death. And I have, it's not, you know, I am for outing, so therefore I run around talking about everybody. I've always been circumspect. But when there were major, you know, movie stars making millions of dollars and didn't want to touch that subject, it angered me. That scene, by the way, I have to tell you here and before the the world, um, is so powerful because it's complicated. Those men are essentially the modern counterparts of the A-gays that were in the first series. And they're, they're contemptible people in some ways. So that when Stephen Spinella does that diatribe about um, you can't talk about this if you didn't live through it, you can feel it. And you can feel it equally when Ben uh, tells Michael, you know, you didn't defend me, you know. It, it examines the emotions on both sides in such a powerful way. That sequence of scenes was a real um, turning point, I think, for the show. Because in the room, Andy Parker, the brilliant Andy Parker, yeah. wrote that episode. And I remember him bringing the original scene in. And we were talking about it. And there were people in the room who had really divergent emotional experiences on opposite sides of the table. Yeah. There were people in that room who, you know, said, oh my God, this uh, Steven Spinella's character is named Chris Two. <laughs> you know, Chris Two's monologue made me sob. And then there were people in that room that said, I felt nothing 
because look at what he's doing to Ben. And fine-tuning it to the point where you can walk away feeling empathy for both of them is the whole point. Especially within the community, there's a lot of listening that we need to start doing in both directions, you know? I realized so much being in the room and talking to you and talking to Alan, how much I've missed from the generation above me and how much I don't understand about what that experience was and vice versa, right? The amount of like, what do people want to be called now? The judgment around pronouns or the judgment around whatever the hot button topic is that we've decided like, no, 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 we're going to define queer as this. (laughs) We have to go back to our humanity each time. Decency has to be at the core of everything we do. And uh, that's hard sometimes because you do want to make rules. I do want to make rules about what people say and do sometimes. I love that scene as much as anything in the show, or the two scenes. Me too. I feel like it just really got to what we were trying to do, you know, this, this intergenerational conversation that you started with the books and we get to now continue. Did you have a Barbary Lane? No. I mean, I lived in the little house on the roof where the twins live in the modern one. Do you have like a chosen family here? Various people that mm-hmm. were part of my chosen family. Uh, Steve Beery, a guy I met, he sat next to me at Harvey Milk's funeral, and he had been Harvey's last boyfriend and didn't know anybody at the funeral. And and he held my hand through the th- ceremony, and he was sobbing. And, and I met him on the street uh, several weeks later, and he was uh, suicidal, basically, because he didn't thought, if the, if the world can kill Harvey Milk, what's going on, you know? And we, and we sort of dated, but we weren't compatible in any romantic way, but yeah. we just were total friends and traveled the world together for 15 years. And I thought of him as family during yeah. that period. I didn't have the boyfriend that I was looking for. That took few more years <laughs> and a few more mistakes. Well, that's how you get to the good ones. You yeah, make you a lot of mistakes. Really have to get to the good ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's, I mean, we talk about it so much with tales about chosen family, obviously. It's become such an important part of your entire career. But um, I think it's really, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, that what I love about Barbary Lane is that it's not, I mean, yes, there's the fantasy of it. Like, I want to live at Barbary Lane. But I think it also is teaching people a lesson to, like, look for theirs, their Barbary Lane, yeah. right? Look for their safe space. Well, for years, I've heard from people. That, uh, some, some guys down in L.A. had uh, named their apartment building Barbary Lane South. Even in my very short time living in the Tales world, the amount of women that tell me they are Marianne <laughs> is... Yeah. Amazing. Everybody thinks they're Marianne. And they can't be because I am. Right. Well, I'm glad we've established that. But isn't that also because we all feel like the outsider? Don't you think that's why? That's the appeal of Marianne. I mean, she's smart. She's not dumb. She's a very smart woman. But she's in a strange new world. And that's why it's easy to sympathize with her. And because she's Laura Linney, she can look up that stairway at the beginning of the show. And you see everything on her face. Uh, you know, fear about what's about to happen and nostalgia, and it's all there. What does it feel like to have had the last 40 years of your life defined by this world? Uh, Safe. Feels like Barbary Lane. Because I didn't know what I was going to be for years. (laughs) 
I was supposed to be a lawyer. I really was bored by that. And my early journalistic jobs were just, I thought, I can't. And I tried to being a working in an ad agency, including the one that inspired Halcyon Communications oh, in the right, beginning. Right. I was the mailboy at Halcyon Communications. And, uh, you know, I was somebody who in his early 30s thought, I haven't got anything to do. That's an interesting thing that I, we should highlight for a certain percentage of whoever's going to listen to this, because I also had no idea what I was going to be. And I think there's this feeling that you're supposed to know and you're supposed to be sure very early. And I talk about this a lot, as much as I can, that like, you know, I got hired on Orange when I was 30, which now sounds very young, but at the time, I felt behind. I felt like I was surrounded by people who had graduated from better schools than I, who were going to law school, who were going to med school, Everyone seemed further ahead than me. And I didn't even find writing until my mid-20s, you know? You need to celebrate that with other people because yeah. you can yeah. you can start late and get yes. on the right thing. Yeah, and then it's okay to take a while to find it because you only get better, I think. Especially if you're writing. Yes. Oh, my God. You've got more truth to tell the yes. longer you live. Yes. Yeah, and you, you need stories. You yeah. don't have stories when you're young. Yeah. I have to tell you, I had someone today asked me you know, what is the moment that has stood out beyond any other moment? And I said, anytime I look into Armistead's eyes, <laughs> I feel so overwhelmed. Um, there's something about looking at you that helps me understand the magnitude of your work and being invited into your work and being trusted with your work. And I can sort of project myself 30 years into the future and be like, oh, even 30 years from now, this is still going to be one of the greatest honors of my life. Thank you so much. I'm glad that that feeling allowed me to have you in this story. Um, we all need people, I mean, especially, I mean, we're an intergenerational couple, really. <laughs> yes, we are. I'm Christopher Isherwood was, was the person that told me that, it, and I, I knew that he was addressing specifically my own doubts about my work. And he said, my boy, it is possible to commit art and entertainment at the same time. And don't you let anybody tell you otherwise. And that gave me the confidence just to keep on doing it. And I ended up writing the forward to the Berlin stories when it was reissued. Do you still, um, in terms of your creative process, do you still doubt yourself? What, what is your actual, when you sit down to write, what's your process like these days, both practically and emotionally? It's still terrifying. I don't know any writer that doesn't find it terrifying. Me neither. You just have to get on the road and do it, you know. Uh, I've decided on my next novel uh, that I'm going to get back to the, the terrors that I would inflict upon myself when I was writing the, the serial, which is just to put them in a room with each other and let them talk and see who lives down the street, and it will f you will find your way to the story. You let them talk, they teach you. Totally thought that was bullshit for years. I mean, it's not. No, I believe in all sorts of, like, like my grandmother's rolling over in her grave, my Italian Catholic grandma, when I'm like, no, 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 I believe that, like, the universe is, like, telling the story through me. I believe that my characters talk to one another. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I have so many more questions about your process. So you're about to start writing again. A new book? This is what I can say. It's a deep dive into the center of tales. Ooh. I'm going to England to write, so there's a clue there. Uh, but um, a lot of readers have said, you, you didn't pay enough attention to that character, yeah. and I want to know what happened. Yes, I had that question also about this thing that we're talking yeah. about. You know, I've been meaning to tell you, and we can end here, it, 
the amount, do you find this with tails? Cause it's been in your life for so long, even in like the two or three years it's been in my life, it starts to seep into real life. Like I feel like all these very strange coincidences started happening and you know, my writers would go out to dinner and they would run into each other at dinner yeah. randomly, right? Like it just sort of... I find it too. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only crazy yeah, one. Yeah, it permeates. You see them. You see see it happening. Yeah, it sort of changed my lens that way where when something happens, I'm like, oh, that's a very like Talesian coincidence yeah. that just happened. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun. It is fun. Yeah. Maybe we're just trying to convince ourselves that we live at Barbary Lane. Maybe. Maybe I do. <gasps> I'll see you there. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Love you. Love you too, darling. All right, friends and family, thanks for joining us this week on Tales of Your City. This show is produced by Netflix with Pineapple Street Media. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. You can find us every Monday wherever you find your podcasts. Special thanks to Leela Day. If you enjoyed what you heard, spread the joy and tell a friend, your family, whether biological or chosen. Also, don't forget to rate and subscribe to Tales of Your City on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out Tales of the City, now streaming on Netflix. Netflix.